This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. We are in the last chapter of this glorious book in this series that we call Sent, kind of embracing this idea that... As the Father sent the Son, He sent the Spirit, and now we are sent as followers of Jesus into a broken world with the Gospel. And we're in the 21st chapter of John, and we're kind of wrapping up this whole book, and really depending on His grace, even this morning. This is a wonderful time, but this is also Christmas time, also a very uh, needy time for God's grace, isn't it? See, there's there's... All of us have these silly things that we would just like to start over in our lives. And some of us today are going into debt in the Christmas season in order to try to start over in your relationship with a spouse or a child or an employee at work or a friend or something like that. Because we are people that gravitate to new starts and do-overs and can we just start again and kind of hit the refresh button in the relationship. And sometimes Christmas has that little bit of an offer there. It's kind of like when you're we're playing as a kid and, uh, you know, you didn't like the direction of the game and somebody said, hey, can we just do a do-over? I mean, we have those kind of silly things in our lives where we just want to say, can we just do this thing over again? I mean, maybe the conversation this morning at, in the kitchen with somebody that you really love, you were just like, uh, can we just start over? Can we start the day over? Can we start this conversation over? But how much more when you come into a holiday season like that and like this and you're saying there's other things that haunt me, more serious things, not silly things that I want a new start in. And if somebody were to ask me, you know, what do you really want for Christmas? So I want to invite you to do that. Because oftentimes we're just not honest with that. We, we just say, well, we want this or this or item of clothing or a piece of jewelry or an iPod or something like that. But there are people in the room right now that would like a new start because they're addicted to something and they're like, I'm tired of the prescription medication or I'm tired of the, the illegal drugs or I'm tired of the pornography that I'm addicted to. There are people who are just like, man, could I just have the voices stop screaming at me in my head that I'm worthless and I'm horrible I'm the worst parent in the world. I'm the worst mom in the world. I'm the worst wife in the world. I'm the worst husband in the world. These voices scream at you. There are people who are suffering from depression and serious anxiety as they head into the holiday season. And you can't just gift wrap that and stick that under the tree and just start over. Just nice packaged gift. Can I start over as a dad? If I've had an abortion, can I start over? If I just can't seem to stop hating my job or my life, can I start over? I wouldn't stand here today. I would not. With all the voices in the culture that are saying that you can have a fresh start if you buy this. I wouldn't stand here today if I didn't say... There is a new start offered in the gospel, a brand new start. There is hope for you. There is potential for change for you. And just like we saw last week, there was a, an individual we looked at last week that just desired 
a new start with God, and he got it. Jesus called this guy Peter, and Peter denied him, just like we've all denied him, and he went his own way, and he really tore the relationship with him and God. And when he tore the relationship with him and God, he also broke the dream and the calling that God had on his life to be a fisher of men and to be productive in the kingdom, and it was just gone. It was lost. It was lost in his heart. It was lost in his mind. And Jesus pursued Peter just like he pursued us. And he says, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to call you to myself. I'm going to bring you back into a relationship with me. And that's the gospel being brought back into a relationship with God because of the initiative of Jesus Christ. And when we're brought back into a relationship with God, we are restored in the kingdom and put on mission, being put on his mission, being the sent people of God that he calls us to be, that to be called to God is to be called to be sent and to have a new start on life. No matter what we've done in our past, no matter what the challenges are in the present. And I'm not foolish to think that we don't come in here with lots of different kinds of challenges and lots of different kinds of temptation. But the gospel offers us a new start. And that's what we're going to look at today. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the kicker for today's message. This freedom, this new start, is found on a very narrow road. This new start is a person. This new start is a redeemer. This new start is a, somebody that can reverse the things in our lives. But this person is on a narrow road. And this person is saying, come and follow me. Come and walk this road. This road is not an easy road. This road is, is not a comfortable road. I play Candyland sometimes with my kids and this road is not going down Gumdrop Valley and into Chocolate Lane and all that kind of thing. It's a difficult road. And Jesus says, come and follow me down this difficult road because this road offers you freedom. There is freedom and new starts and fresh beginnings if you follow me down this road. And that's what Peter learns. That's what we're going to see, that Peter learns that freedom is in following hard after Jesus. So we're in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Let's read and then we'll get started. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Father, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of these words that you would help us to find freedom in those two words, follow me. And we would follow you out of our past. We would follow you out of all the mistakes and all the shame of our past. That we would follow you out of all the, the struggles that we're looking at right now that just seem to send us into darkness and depression and fear. We'd follow you out of the fear of the future of what you could call us into. The fear of taking risks for you. Just by following you. Help us to find freedom in those words and in that invitation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Freedom is in following Jesus. That's the big idea today. Following Jesus. Following hard after Jesus. Following Him in difficult places. Following Him wherever He calls us to go. Following Him. Keeping Him in view. Looking at Him and ignoring everything else in our lives so that we are fruitful in the kingdom of God and we live as sent people. We will not be the sent people of God unless we understand that the real call of discipleship is simply a following of Jesus and not moving on from that. Just following him and following him wherever he calls us to go. Now, this, the kind of markers of the story goes like this. When we follow Jesus, as Jesus is calling Peter, he leads us out of a few things. And the first thing is the shame of our past. The second thing is the fear of the future. And the last thing is the distractions of the present. God knows that we need to be freed from these things if we're going to follow Jesus and be effective in the kingdom as sent people. So these are the things that he calls us out of, our past, our future, our present, and namely the shame and the fear and the distractions in each of those, in each of those things. So let's look at the first thing, the shame of our past. It is God's will that you don't carry around in you shame and heartbreak over things that you did in your past that stumble you and cause you to, to be ineffective in the kingdom. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So let's just back it up a little bit on the breakfast end because we, we ended last week just marveling at the idea that these disciples who had walked away from God, was invited by Jesus to come and have breakfast. Jesus is on the shore. They've been fishing all night long. They catch nothing. Jesus The fisherman has fish and he says, you come and follow me. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to direct you. You're going to come in and rest and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to guide the church and you're going to experience fellowship with me. And that's the first thing that God calls us to in this thing called Christianity. It's a relationship with Jesus. And so he's invited them in. They've just had breakfast. They finished breakfast. And then Jesus says to Simon Peter, the one who who was longing for this relationship, the one who had turned his back on God, now is getting his conversation with Jesus. And he says, Simon, son of John. He calls Simon Peter by the first title that he had when he first called him. So Peter took on kind of different titles, but Jesus says, I'm going to go back with you, Peter. I'm going to, I'm going to start 
fresh. I'm going to start from the very beginning. When I first called you, I called you Simon, son of John. And now I'm going to call you Simon, son of John again. I'm going to, I'm going to start this thing over again with you, Peter. And he asks him a question. He says, do you love me more than these? And he's not talking about fish. Do you love me more than these 153 fish? Do you love me more than this breakfast this morning? He's not asking him that. He's saying, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? That's the question that he has for Peter. Where's your affection? Where is your love? Where is your devotion in, in your heart? Do you love me more than these other disciples? And Peter could, over the course of his life, kind of point to some things that would show, yeah, I, I do love you more than the disciples. Maybe Peter really thought he did love Jesus more than the others. Maybe he was a little bit in the competitive thing with John who kind of had the the title of the disciple whom Jesus loved and who reclined at the table and put his his face on Jesus's chest and just had a kind of intimate relationship with Jesus. And maybe he was a little bit jealous. I don't know. But Peter is the one that jumps out of the boat. So in this context, he's soaking wet because of his devotion. I mean, the rest of them came in the boat. Peter is like still soaking wet because of his, his love for Jesus. He just jumped out of the boat and started swimming to Jesus. In other cases, like at the case of, of Malchus, remember the, the guy who's going to arrest Jesus and Peter draws the sword and cuts off this guy Malchus's ear? And that's because of his devotion. I mean, it's because of his public devotion to Jesus Christ. Peter was the one that got out of the boat. Do you remember that story? All the disciples are in the boat and they see Jesus coming and walking on the water. He's walking on the water. They think they're seeing a phantom or a ghost. And Peter's like, no, I think that's Jesus. And he calls out to him and Jesus says, yes, it is me. And Peter says, if it is you, then call me. In the calling, I I will have power and strength to actually come out to you. And Jesus is like, I'm all about that. Come on. And Peter, for all his mess-ups... And all his failures, he's the one that in faith and in boldness and in devotion steps out of the boat onto hard water and starts walking on the water to Jesus because Jesus is in view. And there's something powerful when Jesus is in view. There's things that we can do in that that we could never do when he gets out of you. Jesus is teaching us and teaching Peter that when I'm in view, there's things that you can do that... You, you will never be able to, to do on your own. Peter could always boast of his devotion. And so Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, talk to me about your devotion. Talk to me about your love for me. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, Peter is able to say, to Jesus, knowing that Jesus knows everything, yes. And God asks us that question here today too. He looks at all of us and he says, do you love me? Can we say with Simon, son of John, yes, you know that I love you. You know that you called me out of my past. You know that you called me out of my fruitlessness. You, call, you know that you called me out of my purposelessness and you called me into a relationship with you and you've changed me. Peter's able to say that to Jesus and recognize that he knows that. Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. 
He's confessing something to Jesus. I love you. That's a real statement that Peter can make to Jesus. You know that I love you. You know where my heart is. You know where my affections lie. And you know I've failed you. You know that I've gone a thousand different ways. And you know that I've broken this relationship so many times. And I'm coming off of that. I'm in the shadows of that. But yet you know me. You know that I, you've changed me. You know everything about me. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. So Peter's probably perplexed about that, okay? But then he says again, he asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Jesus, it's not that Jesus is hard of hearing. What? What did you say? Do, is that, is, was that a yes? Was that an affirmative? He's not hard of hearing. And he's not confused about where his affections are. He's doing something that he wants public in Peter's life and public in Peter's memory. He's helping Peter be reinstated in a, in a loud, public way. Well, Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? There's a grief that happens. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus asks Peter to tell him that he loves him. To say it in front of people. To say it publicly. Three times. I love you. You know You know, I love you. The other people might know it. The other people might be suspicious of it. The other people might look at my clothing and determine by my clothing that I love you, which is no ultimate determination of our affection or devotion. But Peter's able to say to Jesus, you know everything about me. You know everything about me. And you know that I love you. You know that I've messed up, but you know that I love you. Now, why is he asking three times for Peter to say, I love you back to him? What is it? Is Jesus trying to shame him? Is he trying to just hurt him in this? No, he is reinstating Peter. He's giving Peter back his calling. He's giving Peter back his dream. And he's removing the shame of the past from Peter because Peter can surely remember the words that he said publicly when he denied Jesus three times. Three times Peter had an opportunity to affirm his devotion to Jesus publicly and three times he failed bad. He fell hard. This little servant girl is next to him at this moment of utter heartache. Jesus is going to the cross and she says, do you follow him? Do you know him? He says, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about, he basically tells her. He gets in front of another crowd and says, I'm telling you, I do not know the man. He can remember these words that he said. He can remember the crowds. He can remember their looks. He can remember the conviction and the guilt in his heart each time that he said, no, I don't know him. But just like the sin that we deal with in our lives, sometimes you get on a road and you get on a tailspin and you just keep going down that road. 
Can anybody resonate with the temptation that Peter's experiencing in this moment where he's just denied Jesus twice and for whatever reason, he can't seem to break out of the tailspin and stop denying. Maybe it's just a sense of accusation on his life. Maybe it's just a sense of guilt. Maybe it's just a sense of temptation that I'm just caught in this thing and I can't get out of it. And the fear has just overcome me to such a degree that I'm just going to keep going down this road. So in front of the third crowd, he invokes a curse on himself and says, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and he remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me, Peter, three times tonight. The very night you proclaim this devotion, you're going to deny me three times. And scripture says he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He cried Tears came down his cheeks because he was isolated from his master, from his treasure, from his friend, from his Lord. He denied him. And he knew the grief. He knew the bitterness that crept in on his soul because of what he did and the three times that he denied him. And Jesus is saying, I'm redeeming that moment in your life. Many of us have done things in our past and we go back and say, Why, God, did you let me do that? Why did you let me do that horrible thing, that ridiculous thing to say those horrible words to that person? I don't even want to think about that. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to revisit that in my mind because the very memory of it brings a sense of shame and a sense of guilt and makes me weep bitterly because of the things that I've done in my past and because of the shame that it brought to me, to my family, to other people, to my friends. You would resonate with Peter. And I want you to know that there is hope for you because we serve a redeemer. And what redeeming means is he reverses the things that we've done in our lives. And he takes those things that we have done, the very things that we have done, and he, he changes it and reverses it and makes something that was very, very ugly into something that is very, very beautiful for him and for his glory. There are some ugly things in your life and you're like, God can't do really anything with that. All he can, he can forgive it, but he can't redeem it. He can, he can, you know, it, it can be out of, it, it won't necessarily be a hindrance to my relationship with him, but he surely can't use it. Well, Peter might have thought the same thing about his denials. And Peter and Jesus is saying, no, I'm redeeming it. I'm reversing the effects. I'm, I'm changing what you've done and I'm making something that's God glorifying out of what you've done and reinstating you to myself and taking something from your past and bringing something glorious through it and in it. And he wants to do that in all of us, in all of us. Peter isn't unique in this promise. Jesus wants to redeem things of our past. He wants to remove the shame. He wants to break the shame from your past. There are things that we feel shame about that we did 15 minutes ago. He he wants to break that shame from your past. Something you thought 15 seconds ago. He wants to break that shame of your past and live in a glorious presence and freedom. And there are some things that you are still feeling shame about that you did 15 years ago that you've asked God to forgive and he has forgiven. And you need to break free from the shame of that past and come new to Jesus Christ and realize that you're reinstated because of him. And there is hope for you. There's a calling for you. Notice how he, how he reinstates him. Notice what he calls him to. 
It's not to do anything first. Do you love me, he asks. He asks him three times, do you love me? It's the same question he asks us. It's the same question God asks us through 66 books of the Bible that our hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, the one who ultimately loves God with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength, because the great calling on all of us is to love him with everything, to put him first place, to put him priority, that he would be preeminent in our affection and in our devotion. In Matthew 22, Jesus told his disciples, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. No other gods. It's just, that's it. No other gods in your heart and in your mind. Me alone, me center stage, me always, me only. Freedom is me only looking to me and loving me with all of our, all of your heart and soul and mind. And we've failed this and Jesus hasn't failed this for us. He has loved God with all of our, all of his heart. And he gives that record to anybody who puts simple faith and trust in him alone. And then he begins to renew our affection so that we can actually do this. Put him priority. Put him first place. Love him. We don't, we're not born with a love for God. That comes as a gift from Jesus through his Holy Spirit. He gives us a love for him. Now he's, he's looking right now. This sovereign enthroned Christ is looking at us individually and corporately. And he's asking us the same question he asked Peter. You. Do you love me? Where is your affection and devotion in relation to me? Is there anything that's taken center stage? And we shouldn't be surprised to find something there. It should not shock you today to be like, yeah, there's something center stage. We are quickly moving things to priority and preeminence. And Jesus is always saying, get that out of your heart, out of your life. Jesus is not afraid of causing us a little grief in the process, just like he caused Peter grief. Peter was grieved the third time that he was asked, do you love me? Because he had other things that had crept up and and taken first place. And Jesus is like, get that out. That's a wonderful second place item in your life. That's a wonderful third or eighth or ninth place thing. It's important, but it's not first place in your life. And, and, and churches do this too. We have to be, be aware of this. In, in the book of Revelation, Jesus kind of gives a, an evaluation of the seven churches of Asia. And he says this about the church in Ephesus, which I, I visited Ephesus in seminary, and there's not a church there, which made me wonder, did they... Did they really do what Revelation 2.4 says and just abandon their, their love and get scattered? Jesus says this about the church in Ephesus. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. He commends them. He says, this is wonderful and this is wonderful and this is wonderful and this is great. But I have this against you is that there's something else that you're more excited about more devoted to than simply loving me. And you've abandoned the love that you had at first. I have this book on my bookshelf. 
that uh, the title alone is provoking. And uh, it's this. The, the title of the book is Parenting is Your Highest Calling and Eight Other Myths That Trap Us in Worry and Guilt. In it, the author says this, Our greatest and most constant temptation as parents is to unseat the sovereign from his throne and replace him with our family. That's a, that is a constant temptation as parents. But that's a constant temptation in a lot of areas of our lives too. A constant temptation as employees. A constant temptation as a student. Constant temptation as a teen. is to take something good and wonderful. Family is wonderful. But to love it more than Jesus is idolatry. It's idolatry, plain and simple. Peter recognized that he had some idols in his life. He had let other things take center stage. And now he's grieving because he's recognizing Jesus is aware. And he's calling me to love him with a whole heart devotion. Now, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, that there's a grief that the presence of the Holy Spirit gives to us as a gift that leads us to repentance and salvation. He says, a godly grief through the Holy Spirit produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So there is such a thing as grief, feeling grief, but there's a sweetness to that grief because it's leading us to Christ where there is no regret and there's life and there's joy and there's freedom and there's hope in Jesus. So he gives them back his first priority. But notice what else he gives them back. In calling him out of shame, he gives his calling back. Peter's going to be a fisher of men. He's going to live on purpose. The 153 fish that they just caught in the nets and the nets didn't break. He's like, that's what I'm going to do with you with people. Peter, I'm going to send you into the crowds and you're going to start catching people for the kingdom of God. You're going to start going out into the masses and preaching a message of life and truth. And my spirit is going to go and in that call people to myself. And it's not just going to be your own ability and your own strength and willpower and ingenuity and creativity. Blah. It's going to be through my power and my spirit that I'm going to give you your calling back. And he's going to love the church. So every time that he says, do you love me? Notice the next thing that he asks him to do. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Focus on my sheep. Jesus is very aware that there are sheep in the fold and there are sheep outside of the fold that his eyes and his heart is watching and looking at. And as they wander and as they go their way, Jesus is saying to Peter, I want your affection for me to be shown in your love for them and your love for my sheep and your love for my bride. Over and over again in the scriptures, the church, that's the people of God, the followers of God are called the bride of Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but it's basically that God has pursued a people for himself and this relationship is so amazing with Christ, that we are called his bride and he is our husband. And he cares for his bride. He loves his bride. He thinks about his bride. He he gets excited about his bride. Much more than husbands you've ever gotten excited about your bride, Jesus gets excited about his bride. 
And in my generation, there's just this idea that we can take Jesus, we can love Jesus, we can be united to Jesus Christ by faith alone, but diss his bride. You could just dog his bride. You could leave the bride out on the front porch as you invite Jesus in to dine and just jilt the bride all together. I can take Jesus, but I don't have to have the bride. I can insult his wife. I mean, husbands, have you ever seen your wife get insulted in the, the anguish that you've experienced in a small way compares to the anguish in Christ's heart whenever his wife is jilted and insulted? And Peter says, that's not, and, Paul, and Jesus says to Peter, this is not going to be the way it is for you. You're going to tend my sheep. And that's what he's asking us to love my bride. Your devotion to me will be shown in your love for my bride. Well, notice what else? Fear of the future. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. He sort of changes the topic. He's just had this feed my sheep, do you love me interaction. And then just almost like a quick change in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, lest we wonder, what is he talking about? Verse 19 tells us exactly what he's talking about. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus is telling Peter exactly how he's going to die. Make no mistake about it. Verse 19 says, this he said to show by what kind of death. That's not some theoretical idea. That's an actual reality of death that Peter was to glorify God. That says something about how death glorifies God. That kind of snaps a little bit of the fear out of death. But it also says something about the relationship that Jesus has with Peter and Peter's calling You're going to serve me for a number of days. And then the future is going to come. And at some point, and this is, everybody agrees that this is basically talking about some some form of crucifixion. You're going to suffer the same fate that I suffered. You're going to live for the kingdom of God. You're going to be a fisher of men, Peter. And you're going to glorify me by taking on the same kind of death, literally, that I, I took. Crucifixion was very common in that day. As the kingdom advances, as you catch men, you're going to experience that joy and that calling and all of that. But there's a future that you need to be relieved of the fear of. This did happen for Peter. History tells us that under the emperor Nero, he likely was crucified in Rome. And that happened 30 years after this is said. Something like 30 years after Jesus tells him he's going to die. He lives with this prophecy kind of spoken over him. And he labors for 30 years fruitfully under this, this idea. And how do you do that? You think you've got the ability to kind of labor fruitfully with that kind of pronouncement over you by somebody who knows what's going to happen to you? Jesus knows what's going to happen to Peter. And Peter knows that Jesus knows. It's not like, well, maybe that's not going to happen. No, Peter's like, I know that's going to happen because he knows everything. He's already said it three times. 
You know everything. You know how I'm even going to die. Well, you don't have it within you. Nobody in this room does. And the only way that we do get it is by the Holy Spirit taking the promises of God and putting it in our hearts to where we say with the Apostle Paul, neither death, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing that is going to come down the pike is going to separate me from the love of God. Peter, in Jesus' presence, is taking hold of the truth that nothing is going to separate me, including death. That's why his friend Paul can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul lived his life as if the next best thing that could happen to him is to die. The only way that that happens for us, and it does happen for believers, to be able to say the next best thing to happen, that could happen to me is to die, is if life truly is Christ. If life is Christ truly, then death truly is gain. Because it's more Christ. It's more life, ultimately. It's more of Jesus. There is a beauty in Jesus that Peter will see more of as he follows him from his ascended place. There's a beauty in Jesus that I believe makes death look delicious. I've just read too many accounts. And I believe the accounts where death came, a martyrdom came, and the Spirit also came and reminded promises that love is not going to be separated and the experience of more of Christ is soon to come. And I just believe that Jesus is telling Peter, I'm going to free you from the fear of the future. This is going to happen, but I'm going to be there with you. And I'm calling you to follow me. That's the words that he leaves him with. This is going to happen, Peter, but notice, here's freedom. Freedom is in not worrying about what's going to happen. It's in following me. When it happens, keep me in view. Look towards me, and I'm going to get you through. Follow me. I think it also says something about the the sense of urgency that Peter's got in his life. I've got this uh, tomato plant. I guess I should say I I had this tomato plant in my backyard that we planted at the end of spring, kind of early summer, where we planted a bunch of different kinds of vegetables. We planted squash, zucchini, green beans, um, tomatoes, and some, some other things, cucumbers, carrots. We get all, come, all coming to mind right now. All these things that we planted, and we just started to see a bunch of stuff just pop up over the summer. I mean, all the as soon as you start to see green, you're like, oh, yes, vegetables are coming. I mean, it's just going to happen. We're going to be little farmers and fulfill our dream and all that stuff. So we're starting to see all this stuff come up, and it just takes forever. I mean, it's just more green, more green, no fruit, nothing's coming. Finally, at the end of summer, after all of this oppressive heat and weeding it and tending to it and all that kind of stuff, we finally start to see things like the carrots start to make it. And we start to see cucumbers and we start to see zucchini and squash and all these things. And we're, man, we're excited. But my eyes were on the tomato plant. I love tomatoes much more than I love all those other things. 
And I was really excited about these old cherry tomatoes. All summer long, this was the most impressive looking bush. I mean, it just grew and outgrew its little thing that we kept it in and just kept on growing and kept on growing, but no buds, no tomatoes. And we're just like, when is this thing going to grow? I mean, when, when's something going to happen? Finally, the end of summer, end, into fall, we've already had a couple of cold fronts come in and suddenly this thing starts to bloom. And these little green balls start to appear, hanging off the, the, the limbs and the vines of this tomato plant. And, you know, wow, look at this. We're seeing tomatoes finally come in. And then we started to get a bunch of those tomatoes start to come in, little green tomatoes. And then I saw, oh, to my surprise, one little bitty cherry tomato deep inside there that I, I plucked and I held up as a trophy, brought it into the house, danced around it. I think I, I, think I ate it. I might have just been too excited to eat it, but... Brought it into the house, so excited about this thing, and then a cold front hit, and bam, it was done. It died. One night, it just the, that frost came in, and it was it was done. I mean, it just died. The whole all of our all of our garden just died. We knew it was coming, and I just wanted to interview my little tomato plant a couple of weeks before that and say, "What are you doing? What's what's happening here? I mean, there's going to be a cold front coming, and you're not going to make it." And you're just going to, you know, not have anything to show except for one little bitty cherry tomato. And you go to my house today, you'll, you'll see a dead plant with a bunch of green tomatoes just hanging off the vine, just useless. I think the tomato plant would say, well, you know, I've got plenty of time. Sun looks good. Dirt's fine. Water's coming. I've got plenty of time. I can bloom later. And I think some of us do that with God. I've got plenty of time. I've got all the time in the world. And Jesus never lived his life with that kind of sense that I've just, I can just do my thing and then work on kingdom stuff later because I've got plenty of time. He lived with a sense that night is coming. That's what he said in chapter 9 of this book. Night is coming when no one can work. There's a sense of seriousness of the day ahead. And Peter's going to live with this sense of seriousness. Night is coming. There's going to be a time when, when the frost hits and that's it. And God's will is that we don't just end up with, a, with one little cherry, tomato, but that we, we get after what he's called us to do and we, we live with rest, but we live with a seriousness that the time is short and we've got to give our all to the kingdom, the fear of the future. So here's how we're going to close. The distractions of the present. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him, and he said, Lord, when he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And here we're getting into the challenge that you and I all experience with comparison and with envy and with looking around. As soon as Jesus stops being in view, we, we immediately start to look around at what God's doing in other people's lives. Like, what's happening here? And in this case, Peter literally turns around. He's having something of a walk with Jesus. He looks back and he sees John. I mean, Peter was just told, it's not going to go well for me. So he's like, um, what about him? I mean, is he going to suffer the same fate that I'm going to suffer? I, I mean... Wouldn't that be fair? That's what we're all about in, in this life is fair. We just want fair. 
And Jesus says, basically, look at verse 21 or 22. Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He says, basically, it's none of your business, Peter. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I mean, what is that to you? Why do you need to know what I'm going to do in John's life? Why do you need to know that? What's, what's the motive behind that? What, what's the deal? Are you afraid that I'm not going to be there for you? Are you afraid that he's going to get some, some more glory or something like that? What is it to you? You follow me. He repeats exactly what he's just said in verse 19. You follow me. That's your call, Peter. Your call is to follow me. Stop looking around and stop comparing I mean, nothing's going to kill your joy in the holiday season quicker than comparing yourself and looking around. I mean, one great gift, this is totally free, one great gift, it's all free, one great gift that you could give yourself this holiday break is to go into the holiday season not worried about what God is doing in your cousin's life or your sister's life. Or your parents' life. I'm not saying be callous or cold or unconcerned or just stop praying or something. I'm not, I don't mean that. I mean envy in comparison and overly concerned about what God is doing in another person's life and not super excited that he's planted me in a garden and he's called me to bloom. And he's, saying, he's giving me everything that I need to bloom and grow and flourish and to be the sent person that he's, he's called me to be. Stop having crowd envy. I mean, Peter's like, well, he's going to go do this for you. And what about that? And Jesus is like, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to catch men through you in the crowd that I've sent you to. I'm going to send you forward into the crowd I've designed for you that I've fit for you. Quit worrying about what I'm going to do in another person's life. There is freedom in that. There's freedom in just simply following Jesus, no matter how hard it is. Well, look at verse 24. This is this freedom and the new starts that Jesus offers to us in the gospel never ends. Look, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So John is actually putting himself in the shoes that you and I are in. And he's saying, I'm writing this, but I'm also one of the people of God. And even as I'm writing this for the power of the Holy Spirit... I'm recognizing that this is true. My feelings aren't true. My surroundings don't tell the whole story. But this testimony is true, and you can bank your life on it. And then he says in verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. I mean, that's just something to think about. There are many things that Jesus did that we'll learn about, but we don't know about. Were every one of them to be written, he says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, there's just not a library big enough, John says. There's just not enough ink and enough paper to talk about and to write about all the glorious things that they saw of Jesus in a very limited time span. The course of three plus years, there was so much glory that they marveled at in the person of Jesus Christ that he's saying there's not a library in the world that could contain all that could be said. They literally marveled at the man. They watched him walk with God and they marveled and they asked him questions. Teach us how to pray. They would see him perform miracles and they're like, how do you, 
how did you do that? They, they saw his devotion to God and they're like, how do I live that way? They saw his patience. They saw his compassion. They saw his love. They saw everything about him that they could see. And he's saying, man, I didn't write down everything. And there's not a library big enough to write it all down. But the good news is, is that because we're in relationship with Jesus Christ and because death is gain, we will see the glory of Jesus in an increasing way one day. We will see face to face. Now we see through a glass dimly, but we're going to be in a state one day where we're climbing the mountain of his grace and looking out and seeing more of his glory and more of his glory and more of his glory and being thrilled and excited with each new discovery of who he is. So new starts aren't going to end with discovering things about Jesus. I watched this documentary this week uh, about Mount Everest and I love everything about Mount Everest and the people who are crazy enough to climb them. And in this documentary, one of the guys said, um, how do you know that you're on top of the world? How do you know that you're, you've summited Everest? He says, you know it when the mountain just stops. And there's just no more mountain to climb. Bottom line is, I mean, it's just weeks of base camping and camping and just there's just always mountain in front of you. And all of a sudden it just stops and you've summited. And then you look around and you're on top of the world. That's great for Mount Everest, but that's bad theology when it comes to God. There'll never be a time, there'll never be a time, note this, that you ever summit the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what this is teaching. There'll never come a time, 200 years from now, when you're discovering the glories of Jesus Christ, you won't summit. You're not going to run out of mountain. You're not going to run out of glory. John recognizes it here, and we're going to, to be alongside John saying, yep, that's exactly right. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.